This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space, sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. The format for our conversations on DMOU is elegantly simple. It's three questions and a bonus round. And this episode is sponsored by 2-6 Digital, a full-service agency that offers integrated marketing solutions exclusively to destination marketing organizations and members of the travel, tourism, and hospitality industries. Dave Serino, Brian Matson, and the 2-6 team assist DMOs with developing measurable and successful digital marketing strategies through specialized solutions. You can learn more at 26digital.com. And now onto our show, you might say that being an entrepreneur is in Nicole Mahoney's DNA. As a student, she worked for her dad at the family's audio and car stereo shop, eventually taking on their annual sound off event, which was held in their store parking lot. The natural marketer in her took over and the event grew to mini festival size, attracting up to 5,000 people on a Sunday afternoon. When her dad told her to A to Z a project, She learned to do every step of business development, marketing strategy, PR, and branding while working her way through college and her master's degree. With a talent for creating special events, Nicole went on to work in sports marketing at Frontier Field in Rochester, and then as the executive director of the internationally known Lilac Festival. Later on, she headed the Canadagua New York BID, and there were projects for Visit Rochester during that time as well. In 2009, she founded Break the Ice Media to help businesses tell their brand story through public relations, digital, and traditional channels. She has the ability to uncover unique marketing opportunities and develop marketing and public relations initiatives that help clients build long-term success. She not only heads up Break the Ice, but she is also an accomplished podcaster with over 200 episodes of Destination on the Left, in which she talks with a wide range of travel, tourism, and hospitality individuals. Nicole Mahoney, welcome to DMOU. Thanks, Bill. I am so glad to be here. Yeah, we've been wanting to get you on for, well, since I had the opportunity to be on your podcast, which seems like forever ago. And you kept saying to us, you know, I I got this project in the works and let's get past that project and we'll do it. And now is that moment. And that project is really a deep dive into collaboration. And you know, collaboration, honestly, could be your middle name. You are so passionate about this topic. I think you ask virtually every one of your guests on the podcast, Destination on the Left, about collaboration. You did it with me when I was a guest, and thank you for that honor. Collaboration is important for you that your firm, Break the Ice, just completed an exhaustive study of why collaborations are wildly successful while others struggle to find their footing. Now, after those 200 episodes of Destinations on the Left, you started to see some themes emerge that point to what makes successful collaborations go, but you wanted to go deeper. So for your first question, I'm sure that my introduction to your study barely touches the surface or (laughs) breaks the ice. So for your first question, take us through a deeper dive into the Genesis story and how this study was conducted. Yeah, thanks, Bill. And uh, I appreciate you uh, working with me and allowing me, you know, the opportunity now that I've got this project completed to be on your show and talk about it. Uh, And you're right, collaboration is something that I am very passionate about. And when I launched my podcast, Destination on the Left, one of the core themes for the show was collaboration, or what I like to call coopetition. 
essentially this kind of thing that I see happen in our industry mm-hmm. quite a bit where competitors or even perceived competitors come together and work together to create something bigger together than they can do on their own. And at no other time, I think in our history, did we see this really working hard, but during the last year, you know, since the pandemic started. So the genesis of the study really was, we had this idea about collaboration. I've been exploring it on my show for uh, over four years now. And I, I kind of think that collaboration is a major tool like for our industry and that sometimes it gets overlooked or it gets minimized or undervalued. And so what I wanted to do was to provide you know, statistical uh, information essentially on how important it is, how it works, how the travel and tourism professionals feel about it, what are their attitudes about it, have they engaged in collaborations, where do they see the benefits, where are the challenges, and that was really what we set out to do, was to just kind of explore the topic more deeply. I had some ideas formed because of the countless conversations I've had on my show, and uh, we wanted to put them to the test. So ultimately for the study, we ended up with 161 industry professionals in North America completing our online survey. 44% of them have worked in the industry for more than 20 years and 20% of the respondents more than 30. So that says to me, there's a lot of experience here in this study, right? Wow. And um, it was a cross-section of the industry. That's one thing I've dedicated my show to is to really be a cross-section, to really look at the entire ecosystem, not just destinations, not just attractions or accommodations, but all of it. And so the people that took the study were owners, CEOs, executive directors, marketing sales managers, travel agents, tour operators. It was a variety of viewpoints. And I'm, I'm very, very excited about the results. Yeah, and that's one of the things I love about your podcast is it's not just DMOs. It could be almost anybody in the travel and tourism and hospitality space. And that's what I think really sets your podcast apart from all the others that are out there. So listen, the second question I have for you is really diving into that, into the study. And I, I was fascinated with pretty early on in the document, you found that the industry participants you just talked about, the 160 plus that that completed the study with you, they fell pretty evenly into three, what you call attitudinal segments. Tell us about these three groups and give us your thought on why it is, it's almost a third, a third, a third, right? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Uh, I do want to tell you about those three groups, but I also just want to comment on the show, not just being on destinations and also the value of this study, not just being on destinations. Um, And that is that I have another core belief that we can all learn from each other. And the more that we understand where each of us are coming from, the more successful we can be. And so looking at these segments actually is really interesting because, first of all, what the study showed is that everyone collaborates. My research partner, she's not in our industry. And when she was collecting the results and sending them over to me, and she's like, wow, Nicole, 94% have collaborated at some level. And a lot of them have collaborated a lot. And when she first sent it to me, I thought to myself, well, sure, I already knew that, right? (laughs) (laughs) But then she was like, yeah, but the point is like, you knew it, but now you proved it's right. So all of these folks in these three segments are big collaborators. They collaborate and they collaborate a lot. 
But the difference is they approach collaboration with different attitudes and different thoughts. And so for me, these are really exciting because as we can understand each other um, and understand where each other is coming from, we can start to think about our collaborative teams uh, in, a, in a different way. And instead of looking at a certain segment who might have attitudes that feel like they're putting up roadblocks to a collaboration, maybe understanding why they're putting up those roadblocks and valuing them for what they're bringing to the table. So the three segments, which, as you said, were pretty evenly divided. The first, we call them the promoters. These are the people that are just like, let's go. We love collaboration. It brings us great benefits. I can't think of a reason not to pursue it. I love collaborating with other organizations, even direct competitors. They believe that it provides them with fresh thinking and new ideas. And they also believe in the strength that each participating organization brings to the table. So these are just the go-getters. They'll pretty much say yes to every collaboration that comes their way. The second category are the doubters. And the doubters, they kind of tread a little bit more carefully they believe that collaboration isn't always everything it's cracked up to be. Mm-hmm. They think that, you know, some people like those promoters are a little bit overzealous about the whole thing and that it's really not that easy. Right. <laughs> the doubters also believe that collaboration could allow one organization to take advantage of another or that expectations could be unrealistic or timelines might be too optimistic. They want to collaborate but they want to make sure that the situation is right and that everyone has, you know, knows what the work is going to be and that they share in the work fairly. So those are the doubters. And perhaps like, as I described these, you can even think about some collaborative teams you may have been on and you can probably start to identify, you know, some of these folks. Oh yeah. Yeah. So the third category, we call them the protectors. The protectors love to collaborate but they only want to do it as long as they can protect their competitive advantage. They believe that their organization has some kind of proprietary expertise or process that really, you know, is their competitive edge and they will never share it with anyone else. So even in a collaboration, they're kind of holding that piece back. They really want to make sure that, you know, if they're going into a collaboration that they're protected And uh, as long as they feel like their competitive edge is protected, they're happy to be, you know, in a collaboration. So it's kind of interesting to think about the promoters, the doubters, the protectors, and with them being pretty well evenly divided, no matter what collaboration you're on, you're likely going to be in a group mixed with these different attitudes. But interesting that you say that almost all of them do collaborate, but almost two thirds of them maybe would rather not? I wouldn't say that they'd rather not though, Bill. Um, That was kind of my thought at first, but the more I've been exploring the research and looking at the responses, you know, in our full executive summary, which I know you got the sneak peek of, we go into other sides of collaboration and other things that people value. We can look at the different segments. And although there's a statistical difference between their attitudes, they're all still more likely to be closer to the, yes, we believe in collaboration then far away from it. It's just how they're approaching it that's different. Okay. They just want to make sure certain things are covered. So like when you're collaborating with a doubter, for example, you know, it's important to make sure that you show them that you recognize their concerns and, you know, their fears that they might be taken advantage of and just have those conversations up front so that they become more comfortable. 
But the other thing about the doubters that I've been thinking about is, you know, they're going to kind of balance out those promoters who are so gung-ho. So they'll actually give the group, the collaboration, a different perspective and maybe like, okay, hold on, you know, this <laughs> sounds really great and really exciting, but have we thought about this? Or what if this may happen? Let's just really mm-hmm. think through this very thoroughly before we move forward. So they're going to kind of balance out the promoters a little bit. So you can kind of see where each type of attitude brings some value to the table, but you can also see where if you aren't understanding the different attitudes that are being brought to the table, they can be misinterpreted perhaps and really kind of get in the way of a collaboration being successful. Interesting. On a previous edition of DMOU, I think we have an example of a promoter and a doubter that actually got together. And that was the episode with Kurt Krauss when he shared his amazing story regarding the recent collaboration between his visit Norfolk and up until last year, perceived to be their biggest competitor, which is Virginia Beach. And it worked. What have you learned from this study that you most want our listeners that find themselves in the doubter or protector's persona, what would you say to them going forward to move them more into a promoter's mindset? Or, and maybe this is a different way of looking at it, is having all three healthy? Do we want them all to be promoters? Yeah. I know that's two questions. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. But I love your follow-up, your two-part question, because that's a really good point. You know, having that balance, like, first of all, I'll say I'm a promoter, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, right? right. So <laughs> I'm I. passionate yeah. about this. <laughs> and I will lay all my cards on the table. I will give away my secret sauce because I believe, you know, there's enough out there for everyone. But I can see the value that a protector brings to the table, right? And where a protector might be like, eh, maybe we'll give away half of the recipe to the secret sauce, but we're not going to give the whole thing away because we still do have our own jobs and our own you know, responsibilities that we have to make sure we're protecting and being conscientious of. I can appreciate the different viewpoints that would come you know, to the table. I listened to that, that episode with Kurt, and I think you're right. You have this uh, really fascinating collaboration that happened between, you know, this idea of coopetition that I like to talk about between perceived competitors. One of the big things that I hope people take away from this study is that it reinforced that coopetition, this idea of cooperating with your competitors, is good for business. And so as a whole, all three groups Um, As a whole, 76% of them said they have collaborated with direct competitors, and 52% said they've collaborated with indirect competitors. Now, if you look at just the promoters, uh, and I couldn't pull this number up quick enough for you, Bill, but it was something like 90% of promoters (laughs) have collaborated with competitors, right? So you do see some differences, you know, when you start to look at the different segments, but overall, 76% have collaborated with direct competitors. So my takeaway from that is if you aren't collaborating with competitors, you're probably missing out on some tremendous opportunities that other people or other destinations or other organizations are already tuned into. So, you know, just to kind of slam the door on those opportunities without fully exploring them, I think uh, puts your destination or your business at, a, at risk. The other thing that I hope people will be able to take away from this study, there's actually two more things. One is we developed a list of benefits. It was based on what people told us on the benefits respondents found out of 
collaborations. Specifically, and when I talk about collaborations in this study, we're specifically talking about interorganizational, not talking about collaborative teams within an organization. We're always talking about outside of your own organization. And the benefits that people listed were things like increased levels of innovation or fresh mm -hmm. thinking, right. improved relevance to their customers or prospects. There were economic benefits, either in cost savings or in increased revenues, improved brand identity or organizational reputation, um, which is so important right now, expanded skills in digital marketing. I found that really interesting. Increased trust in the organization on the part of stakeholders, customers, or partners, and operational efficiencies and improved listening and communication skills. So these were some of the top level benefits that people listed. And trust and relevance are almost the same. Oh, I mean, yeah. you, you can't be relevant if you don't have trust. And so I think that's one of the biggest advantages of collaboration. I completely agree. You know, and trust right now is so important because there is actually a big lack of trust in, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of the big institutions yeah. that we used to trust, media, government, we have the opportunity right now to really build trust, especially at the local level with those folks. Yeah. And so this checklist or what I'm thinking about, this is in terms of a checklist. When you're thinking about collaboration, you could ask yourself, you know, when you're evaluating a future collaboration or you're trying to take a collaborative idea to someone, look at these benefits and think about them in terms of that collaboration. And then sort of you can evaluate it based on that. Is this going to bring new innovation or fresh thinking? Are there economic benefits? Is there brand and trust building going on? So those are a couple of the things that I hope people will be able to really benefit from. Yeah, not to be a spoiler, but the Kurt Krauss example, I mean, Norfolk and Virginia Beach are, I think, as the crow flies, probably less than 20 miles apart. And one is a beach destination and one is an urban and heritage destination. And they have seen themselves for 30 years as fierce competitors. They won't refer to each other. They won't even admit that the other one exists. And it's like, wait a minute, you both have something the other one doesn't have and you become a much better destination if you can make it all happen together, which I think is just great. And, you know, a follow-up to this last question, recently destination analysts did their own study of DMO executives in which they discovered that a vast number claimed to know that the business model that most of us operate within has to evolve, but a large number say they will not act on that instinct, typically because of lack of resources and or lack of time to get it done. And our listeners can stream that video. It's part of the Destination Tailwind series at bvk.com. But for those that don't want to collaborate, what are their reasons? I mean, is it time? Is it money? Why won't somebody take that step? First, the, to the question of, you know, needing to evolve the way destinations are, their business model, essentially. One of the questions that we asked in this study is we asked if the respondents believed that inter-organizational collaboration would help organizations in travel, tourism, and hospitality survive the current challenge and be more successful over the next five years. So that was the question. Do you think that collaboration will help us basically in recovery? It was really the question. And 60% of respondents, and that's, you know, out of all three of those segments, 60% said it definitely will help. 
Now, if you want to talk about the segments, the promoters were 81% and then the doubters and protectors were a little bit less, but still. Sure. Um, so collaboration really is a great tool, as I mentioned earlier, in the toolbox for coming out of this. Yeah. And I also see it as being a great tool as a way to help evolve the business model. So when we asked questions about what are the challenges with collaboration, to your point, resources came up towards the top of the list. But the kind of catch-22 in my mind about that is you need the resources to be able to engage in the collaboration, but perhaps uh, you can actually stretch what few resources you have if you enter into the collaboration. So trying to, you know, figure that balance out. We also asked questions around uh, what I'm referring to as our the three C's framework for collaboration. And this is a framework I've been working on as a result of all those podcast interviews, because I, I asked the question in every single podcast uh, interview. I say, you know, please tell me what makes a successful collaboration, like a collab- of a collaboration you've done, what made it successful? And the answers fall into three areas. Communication is one, which is huge. It's almost, it's probably statistically one of the biggest answers I get, most common answers. But then commonality is a second one. And by commonality, I mean, you know, finding that common ground with your partner. So in your example of Virginia Beach and Norfolk, their commonality is like the geography, right? And probably my guess is how the visitor visits Mm -hmm. because they want what both, you know, destinations offer. They're very different but finding the commonality. And then the third is commitment. And um, commitment is, you know, being committed to the endeavor because in my mind, if you're committed, you'll make sure it works. There's just no way it won't. You'll just figure it out. If a roadblock comes up, you'll, you know, you'll problem solve it and you'll figure out how to get past it. But if you don't have that commitment and the commitment could be, you know, support from leadership or from your board, it could be, financial, if that's something that's necessary. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a a number of different ways that you can look at commitment. So communication, commonality, and commitment. Well, in the study, we looked at the responses to see out of those three, where were the biggest challenges? And you would think it was communication because that actually comes up most frequently when I ask the question. But there were fewer people who felt they had challenges with communication. It was the commonality and the commitment piece where there were more challenges. And so my uh, advice or from the survey, what I'm taking from that is that if we focus in on trying to find that commonality, what do we have in common? What's the common vision? How can we connect on that and get behind that? And then commit to it, whether it means financial resources, time resources, getting your stakeholders or your board behind you, making sure that commitment is in place. You'd really be set up for great things, in my opinion. Yeah. And collaboration, I think, as we come out of the recession, is going to be even more, as you said at the outset of this conversation, even more important than it ever, ever was. And, and who knows? Maybe it is the dawn of a new day that we know definitively that we have to collaborate if we're going to get things done. So uh, thank you. We will uh, double back around so that we can tell people where they can find the uh, study results and more about you. But first, we have to get to your bonus round question. And I've been wanting to ask this one ever since we met. Before we even met, I knew who you were because 
you were behind one of the gutsiest destination marketing campaigns I have ever seen. It is the now classic, the official home of winter campaign for Visit Syracuse. Tell us about how that whole project came together and how the doubters were proven wrong. Yeah, I would love to. That's a favorite project of mine and my team's. And uh, interesting, I know this this is not publishing today, but you and I are here talking to each other on Groundhog's Day. And we did a huge PR stunt for Visit Syracuse on Groundhog's Day by going to uh, Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and basically crashing their celebration, <laughs> uh, which was really fun. But it was the germ of an idea from the CEO um, of Visit Syracuse at that time, which was David Holder. And if you know David, he's just a very creative oh, yeah. risk taker, you know, in terms of uh, really thinking outside of the box. And so what he had recognized was that Syracuse, you know, they were trying to move the needle on their occupancy, overall occupancy annually they found the softest spots and and where the most, you know, opportunity was in the winter season. But their challenge was that they were known, they had a reputation for really bad winters. Like they would win this (laughs) coveted, I don't know how coveted it is, but the snowball award, which is basically this award for the most inches of snow uh, across New York state. And they'd battle it out with, you know, Buffalo and Rochester and they won most of the time. And so um, what they needed to do was to change the perception about winter. That's what David really wanted to set out to do. So with the Visit Syracuse team and our team, we brainstormed on just that. How do we change the perception? Well, we came up with the idea that, you know, winter is this as a character. We started to think about winter as a character and how winter was often just, you know, pushed to the side. Nobody really liked winter. You know, they maybe wanted winter just for Christmas and the holidays, and then they wanted him out of here, right? And so he was just this like lost soul looking for a home. Nobody wanted him. And so we created this character, this winter character. We did a video series introducing the character and where he was, you know, just kind of depressed and looking for a home and he wasn't wanted anywhere. And it was a lead up to this big press event that we did uh, at the convention center in Syracuse, where we welcomed winter to Syracuse. Alongside that, we had a a media fam tour. So we had some lifestyle and travel uh, press there, but then we also had local and regional press there. And what it did was by rolling out the red carpet for winter, that's what we did literally, What it did was it engaged with all of the stakeholders in the community because, and I know you live in a winter destination, so you Mm -hmm. can probably relate to this, Bill. The locals are the worst. Like, oh my gosh, you know, six more inches of snow. It's horrible here. And why would anybody come here in winter, right? So we were able to help reposition it even within the local minds for the stakeholders, the locals, and then kind of leverage that to get the message out that Syracuse really is a place to go in winter and kind of showcase all of the areas and all the things there are to do there. And then winter as the character actually went and explored all of the amazing things that winter can do in winter in Syracuse. And, um, you know, so there was video, there were live activations that we did. We used PR and some digital campaigns and uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's just great. And, you know, you, you speak about Buffalo also dealing with that same thing. I remembered in true New York style, and this was probably about the same time. I remember seeing some print ads of theirs saying, 
yeah, we got your lake effect right here. (laughs) And showing, of course, the lake in summer (laughs) and saying, okay, lake effect is not all bad. Right. right? There's actually some good to it. There was a feature on CBS Sunday Morning uh, a couple of weeks ago that talked about some of the the hotspot new urban destinations that people are flocking to. And, And one of them, interestingly, was Madison where we're based. And our mayor said there really isn't cold weather. There's just people who aren't prepared with the right outerwear. <laughs> exactly. That's the way we look at it. You just have the wrong coat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, exactly it was a fantastic it. campaign. We really loved how you, you took it out. And yes, Groundhog's Day, what an experience. When we can get back to traveling, I tell everybody, before you leave terra firma, you have to go to Gobbler's Knob on Groundhog's Day, because mm-hmm. what we see on TV is, you know, maybe 10 minutes of this poor little rodent getting, you know, pulled out of a stump. But that event, as you know, that event starts at like four in the morning. Oh, yeah. Actually, it starts the night before. Yeah. You know, and that you guys took it over was so cool. It was amazing. Yeah, we brought winter and we were there to rally for winter. We wanted six more weeks of winter. And so we were there to make some noise <laughs> and and we got the attention of, of the crowd. There were people wanting to do selfies with winter. We even were able to get the Weather Channel um, to take notice and got some good national exposure for it, too. So, yeah, it was amazing. That's great. Well, listen, congratulations on all you do for our industry. Thank you uh, for this new compelling research data into collaboration and for having me on as a guest on Destination on the Left and your virtual marketing summit. Tell our listeners where they can find more about Break the Ice, about Destination on the Left, and about this new study. Sure will. So breaktheicemedia.com is our website. If you uh, visit there, you will find uh, the study under our resources section. You'll also find our podcast there. And um, you can find information about this winter program under our case studies. We have a very nice case study there that talks all about winter. So you can find that there as well. Also, Destination on the Left can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, Amazon, wherever you're listening. uh, Look us up and please tune in. All right. Hey, thank you once again, Nicole. All the best for uh, the rest of the year and uh, looking forward to seeing you in person at some point down the road. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Bill. All right. That's it for this edition of DMOU. Tell your friends and your peers that this is where the best and the brightest get together to tell inspiring stories for DMO pros. Thanks, too, to our sponsor, 2.6 Digital, a full-service agency that offers integrated marketing solutions exclusively to destination marketing organizations and members of the travel, tourism, and hospitality industries. You can find more at 2.6 Digital, all letters, no numbers, dot com. DMOPros.com is where you'll find more on our services to the DMO world, plus links to the Z News, our book, Destination Leadership, and our position papers on a new vision for community marketing and board diversity, along with the biggest DMO job board on the planet and links to earlier episodes of DMOU. That's DMOPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.